Hello, Worcester and the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy, where we use real-world examples about the nuance and intersections of this work by focusing in on my home city of Worcester, Massachusetts, the second largest city in New England. We're continuing our series on housing today with District 5 City Councilor Atel Hajiai. Um, oh, and follow our new Twitter account at Public Hearing MA to join our conversation. Share your thoughts about what our guests are saying, share resources, spread the word about the show to encourage more participation. What topics do you feel we should be talking about on the show? Tag us and let us know. I mentioned in our first episode of this series with Domenica Perone that I am not super familiar with a lot of the intricacies related to housing and programs and in- initiatives that seek to address housing in equity-centered ways. So I'm on this learning journey with all of you, our listeners, as well. This is the Public Hearing Podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, District 5 City Councilor Atel Hajiai. Atel is the Director of Public Education and Advocacy at Central Mass Housing Alliance, where she works on homeless pre- homelessness prevention and advocates for affordable housing. During the pandemic, she worked with a few service providers to help set up a shelter for women experiencing homelessness and ran a separate shelter for 14 families who are not eligible to find homes. Most recently, Atel and colleagues formed the Worcester Together Affordable Housing Housing Coalition to advocate that 20% of the ARPA funding be allocated to the creation and preservation of affordable housing. The coalition recently worked on advancing inclusionary zoning for the city of Worcester, a policy that housing advocates have been advocating to pass for years. Atel is also serving her first term as a Worcester City Councilor. Atel's life story is similar to the story of others who fled violence and poverty. She's called Worcester home since 2001, arriving as a young adult with her parents after fleeing Albania's political upheaval. As a new American with the opportunity to complete her undergraduate and graduate studies at Clark University, she has chosen a life of service, investing back into the city she calls home. She is the mom of two young boys in the Worcester Public Schools, and for the past 16 years, she has served served the Worcester community as a youth mentor, served residents in the Attorney General's office, supported families in public housing and homeless shelters, and organized mothers to fight for a livable climate for all our children for mothers out front. As an advocate, she has served on numerous boards and commissions, including being a long-term member of the YWCA of Central Massachusetts, working on issues of racial and gender equity. Following the written bio that I always read about our guests, I always invite folks to share any additional information about themselves, their identity, their social location, any experiences they feel comfortable sharing that might give our listeners a bit more insight into them and their connection to the topics that we may explore today. So, Atel, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on Public Hearing again. Um, Anything you'd like to share with our guests? No, thank you for having me on and you captured it beautifully. Great. Well, I'm so thrilled to, to welcome you here to talk about housing. I know this is an area that you are both very passionate about as well as very learned in and experienced in. So there are so many facets of this conversation that we can dive into, and I'm looking forward to exploring those with you today. Um, we recently spoke with Domenica Perone to kind of kick off our series on housing, where we really looked at 
talking about and centering like dignity and respect for humanity and, and individuals in our community, specifically through through the lens of um, supporting unhoused populations and folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, Domenica, I think, p- positioned that really well in when we talk about issues of, of housing and, and access. Oftentimes, I feel the, and, and Domenica expressed this, that um, people are talking about like the visible homelessness that folks see and not a lot of the nuance and complexity that is incorporated into housing equity as we as we discuss it. So maybe um, for our listeners to kick us off, what does housing equity mean to you? Yeah, um, thank you for putting in shining light on this super important discussion. Um, for me, housing equity means that we provide housing as a human right, not as a privilege, um, and that we you know, make the investments necessary to target all of our interventions, specifically on the most vulnerable, which uh, in our world of housing are chronically homeless individuals, but also families. You talked about the invisibility of homelessness and a huge portion of the homeless population in Worcester and in Worcester County are homeless families. You don't see them because they're in our homeless shelters for the most part, or they're doubled up with other people. Uh, and that's for me the invisibility of homelessness. So we need to talk about it in a in a holistic way, um, the, both from the chronically homeless individuals that struggle with many things, but also for the invisible ones that we don't see um, in our city. Yeah, I think I. It, became much more aware to me as I started doing, you know, equity-based community development work many, many years ago on those layers of homelessness, right? Like when folks are not able to have their own space, so they are bunking up with families or are kind of moving around um, from friends or, or folks, you know, that they know in the community to, to stay with. And, and while that is a challenge, there's also a layer of privilege to be able to have some of those spaces, right? And so, like, obviously, we're, we're looking at how do we address community need in a way that is is rooted in, like, dignity and respect for all the individuals. And I think when you talk about housing as a human right, it's so critical. And I know that a lot of the folks that might be on the side of saying, like, oh, that all sounds great, but how do we do it? Um, what are some of the ways in which you think our city can move toward, you know, that that vision? Yeah, so it's important to note that it's not just localities that have some power to do that. Um, We are dependent a lot funding-wise to resolve and fund um, homeless prevention programs through both the state and the federal government. And throughout the years, both subsidies that help families and individuals, for example, access uh, fair market rent at a reduced price through vouchers, those have um, not kept up with the price of housing. So if you get a voucher, for example, it doesn't cover a whole lot. So, you know, a family or an individual who is not making a lot of money or working uh, or on disability or fixed income, for example, are not able to cover the cost of housing. So it's it's important for us to keep in mind that it's, it's both us working with the federal government, the state, and then as municipalities, whatever power we have, um, whether that be via developments, and I'll talk a little bit down the road on on inclusionary zoning as one specific policy that we can use to add to the inventory of affordable housing that we have. Um, and, And then there's also things like you talked about, you know, dignity for the unhoused is how do we treat uh, homeless encampments? Um, You know, there's people who think that we should force uh, folks into service in in exchange for housing. 
I don't think that's the right way to go. You know, so that's a dignity, that's a human right issue that everybody should have access to safe and affordable housing, regardless what issues they, they're faced with or what societal position they're in. So that's the basic premise of, in my view, what human, you know, having a policy that's driven by a human right lens looks like. Yeah, and I think that's so critical, and to and to underscore and kind of highlight that, you know, some of the work that I do with um, Living and Freedom Together, an organization mm-hmm. also known as Lift in in the city, um, there they have a very like a housing first mindset with how we approach some of these issues, right? Like a lot of people in our community who are experiencing homelessness are also like experiencing co-occurring substance use disorder and untreated or undertreated mental health disorders. And we often as a society are saying, in order to get these keys that we're dangling in front of you for having access to your own private housing or space, you need to show us that you're worthy of that by being sober, by acting in a way that we feel is, you know, justified is to participate in this community. And I think that's really harmful. And it, mm-hmm. it, it is, I think it is a a mindset that needs to truly be like broken and reshaped through education and more awareness surrounding, surrounding these issues. It's also understanding that, you know, a lot of times you, and there's actually research that shows this, that it's not that um, uh, folks with disabilities or substance abuse or other issues are homeless. It's because homelessness exacerbates those issues. And so a housing first model also takes into account that different people have different needs. And so it's not a blanket solution. So for example, somebody who needs to get into an apartment and they just need a little bit of assistance for three months, Um, that's a different situation. Somebody who needs permanent supportive housing, which, you know, the definition is permanent housing, that it's wrapped around services that they need. So they determine what's suitable for them versus us, like you said, dangling the key and saying, oh, we think you need to be forced into treatment or you need to be forced into a different social service net. So I think the complexities around all these issues are not well understood by the general population. And so we lump everything together into they're bad people, they're lazy, they don't want to work, they don't want to, you know, let's force them into something that is not suitable. And it's not, it's not, it's, it's violating their dignity and their civil rights, in my opinion. Absolutely. And this is another area that I'm very like open about my continued desire to learn more about these the spaces and and zoning and different kind of strategies for housing. And, and one that has come up in a lot of conversations that I've had is around like mixed income housing and like just like mixed use development for, for downtowns and for spaces. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts around how we actually build, you know, Worcester, if you just walk outside anywhere, you are now seeing cranes and things building new developments that I think, unfortunately, often are sending a message to folks that the displacement is continuing to grow. Um, and so what are some of the ways in which we might, if taking specific actions, could alleviate some of the concerns of our residents that are fearful of losing their their spaces? Yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting discussion. I think Council Nguyen said it best in one of their remarks at City Council that we're not anti-development, we're for community development. And so looking at that lens, you know, some of the things that we're noticing in Worcester, for example, um, is that there's a ton of development. 
And while that's good, um, and it definitely enhances our neighborhoods, it also brings up a different question. Who is getting displaced and what are we doing to mitigate that? Um, while I think that gentrification is really hard to stop, I do think that there are things that we can embed in our policies. Um, for example, you know, Boston recently mandated developers to outline a plan for how they're going to be dealing with uh, potential mitigation, uh, potential displacement outcomes. So how are you going to make sure that you're not displacing long-term residents? What's your plan for uh, making sure that if, if, there, if residents are displaced as a result of your development, that you're coming up with ways to help uh, with relocation if folks you know, want to leave their, uh, their neighborhoods, which I don't think anybody wants to leave their neighborhoods. But I, I say all that to say that we do have some, some ways to mitigate some of the displacement um, outcomes. I think that you know, definitely looking at our zoning in general, which I know it's a very complicated topic. It's very technical. But for example, right now, Worcester now, Worcester Next is looking at um, housing in general, but also zoning. Our zoning hasn't been reformed since the 80s. Um, so we're still looking at a very exclusionary zoning, which only allows certain uh, multifamily units, for example, to be built in only some areas of the city, but not in others. And so people get very protective of their neighborhoods and their, the character of their neighborhoods, and they get very protective when there's opportunities for us to build multifamily housing. There's also a lot of myth about what this multifamily housing means. Most of the time, people say, oh, it's for those people. It, it's a very exclusionary way of looking at who our, our neighbors are for. We, we built neighborhoods in the past for uh, single family, huge lots, that didn't allow for us to use our land, which is very limited, um, in ways that can accommodate multiple people. So condos, three-deckers, uh, triplexes, multifamily units, you know, those are all things that I think require a lot of changes in our zoning code, but it also requires a lot of educating our community at large about what it means to have a more inclusive way of opening our neighborhoods um, to everybody, M mixed income, uh, young professionals, families with children, college grads. I mean, if we don't, we risk um, displacement. We also risk becoming a city that's for other people versus a city that's being built and um, made more available for people who live have lived here for a long time. And we're also far enough along in our like development evolution, I think, as as people where we're starting to see and understand what are mm -hmm. the attributes of living that people value and appreciate, mm -hmm. right? Access to green space. People that live in dense urban neighborhoods don't hate green space, mm -hmm. right? Often we're seeking out more of that space, exactly. right? Yeah. And so if lots are able to be utilized in more creative ways, mm -hmm. as maybe how I'll frame it, for, you know, I and I'm someone who I'm a renter in Worcester. Mm -hmm. I've been here now 11 years. I've lived in four different parts of the mm -hmm. city and I've had great landlords. I've had terrible landlords. I've had like a lot of these experiences 
experiences, but I've also had a lot of conversations with mm -hmm. friends and people that I've built relationship with in the community about missing and wanting to continue to build that um, that neighborhood connectivity mm -hmm. to people as well. Like, what are the ways in which we are building relationship with each other if, in, in space and being much more open to closer proximity and living and saying a um, an area in which you have your space and privacy to live, but maybe you share some amenities within the community like an arts space mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that. So there's a lot of creativity, I think, that could benefit our community through kind of creative models like like that. There is, and, and I think that, we, you know, there's there's a, there's ways to look at housing this co-op housing there's community land trust there's all these different models that i think yes they do require both technical assistance for organizations that take them on but it gives us a chance to look at outside the box and it seems to me being that we're living in a very um it's a very big housing crisis not unique just to Worcester i think the whole entire state um, is experiencing that. In fact, Massachusetts is still listed as the third least affordable or most expensive state to live in. Um, but we need to look at everything at our disposal to make sure that we're putting all of our energy into different policy solutions that look at a systemic uh, resolution to, to the needs. And obviously for me as a housing advocate and somebody who stresses during the campaign, it's also making sure that we're prioritizing with an equity lens, the populations that are most being displaced. We have data, for example, that shows that in almost all of the zip codes in Worcester, um, the majority of them are completely unaffordable. And you know, at the crux of that is mostly black and brown folk who are still lingering with stagnant wages, still facing a lot of discrimination, whether that be in lending, whether that be in the rental market. And so, it's great that we can think about a variety of solutions that help people at, at their different journeys. I, I, at least for me, and I know for other folks on council, it's really important that we center the ones that, the folks that have been um, marginalized for a very long time and continue to bear the brunt of um, all the, uh, the racial discrimination outcomes, both that we saw during COVID, but that we know have existed for a very long time. Absolutely. And, and our last series was on the American Rescue Plan Act funding, ARPA, and something that I think a lot of our guests that we spoke to were concerned about was how the city was going to utilize those funds. And was it actually going to be prioritizing the populations of folks who were most disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, black and brown communities and low income communities in our city? And I know that there have been some delays and pauses with the release of the application and now there's an attempt to try and help people navigate through what is not a simple mm -hmm. application, um, which again, when we're talking about barriers, these are things that are important. But one of the things that you brought to this show the last time you spoke that I have carried forward in so many of these conversations is the concept of a budget as a moral document. Like this is the priorities that we are setting. We can talk about them behind a podium as much as we want, but if we're not allocating funding and resources to them, we're not actually prioritizing those, those, those issues. So what are some of your hopes for ARPA and, um, and that money? So I was really happy that we worked really hard um, with this, the former city manager and his administration to allocate 20% of the overall 
146 million that we got specifically to housing. And that's broken down in different categories. But the one that was most important and that's very relevant to our discussion is the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. So the Affordable Housing Trust Fund now has about $15 million in it. And um, I was very, very pleased to hear that the new commission that's going to oversee both the fund in the future, but they're also going to oversee the spending of that money is voted to prioritize applications that center renters or projects that are going to focus on the folks that are making 30% of area median income. So I know that gets a little bit technical, but 30% of area median income it's basically folks that we consider are living in poverty. And these are the folks that are at the margins. They, they can't access any safe and affordable housing. And I, I keep mentioning both safe and affordable because affordable housing is one thing, but to have to live in not substandard housing, it's also a goal, right? And so those projects and those applications that come in front of the commission will get graded um, based on get prioritized, which is great because we both need not just housing for chronically homeless individuals, funding for projects that have stagnated because the state has a complicated process, but we need regular rental market units that can be subsidized for those at those lower income levels. So I'm really pleased to see that the commission voted on that. Um, and in general, I think with the ARPA funds, we'll, we'll, we're going to see how this application process rolls out. And I, I know that some of the requirements because the federal government requires are a little bit stringent, but I think that we have an opportunity, right? We have the one-time shot to have this huge infusion of millions of dollars into communities that really need it. And I think that due to a lot of advocacy, we also have um, some reporting mechanisms in place specifically to figure out and to evaluate whether we are really focusing the money on uh, communities that need it the most or not. So I think from a council perspective, I look forward to getting those reports. And I know Councillor King has been really amazing at asking at every turn through his standing committee, making sure that we get appraised of what happens on a quarterly basis. Yeah, and, and I think the the community engagement piece, and, and I might be biased as a community engagement person, uh, is, is something that I, I do in, in my role, but um, the community engagement piece is so critical in this as well, is yeah. like, in what ways are we truly centering the resident voice and mm -hmm. the, the voice of the people who are most impacted by the challenges that we're facing as a community, and recognizing that it is not enough mm -hmm. to simply invite folks to mm -hmm. a table or into a room to uh, participate, but having strategies and different modalities of mm -hmm. how to gather and collect information from, from people about what their needs are, how they hope these monies will be spent and used. Um, and I think that's like, again, ARPA is like a great example of a lot of money that we have right now mm -hmm. that could be truly transformative, but it's also hopefully shining a light on how can we set commitments to our communities moving forward mm -hmm. that we are going to involve them in the processes um, for how we you know um, identify spending and and how we're allocating resources I think something that I've been advocating for is um, participatory budgeting models for cities how do we get people more involved in understanding where our money goes and how it is spent yeah it's such a good point and you know looking now as someone who went through the first budget process. It's very difficult to understand. It's not a document that I would, 
you know, be able to understand if I didn't spend hours just sitting, going line by line and saying, what does this mean? How do I even translate this huge document to somebody who has never participated in politics or goes by through their day-to-day lives, maybe unaware of how decisions that we make on the council floor impact their lives directly, right? And so one thing that I think that I'm looking forward to in my conversations with the Acton City Manager um, and our our director of, of the budgeting process is just trying to figure out how do we make this document more readable, more digestible, so that we're not just looking at numbers, we're looking at priorities. And the second layer of what you said is also then how do we use that to really per- invite participation and engagement? Uh, because it's not it's not an easy digestible thing, you know, to understand and to navigate um, for those of us that are in, you know, s- sipped into this world in the, you know, on the council on the council side, let alone somebody who looks at that document, 400 pages and just completely overwhelmed as to how that actually relates to their lives. And I and the last thing I'll say is like, you know, the federal government did really well with ARPA funds and said, I want to know how you communities are going to spend the money um, in black, indigenous, and people of color communities. We should be asking that question in all of our budget decisions. How does this policy, how does this budget spending support our racial equity goals? I don't think we're there yet, but I think I have hoped that through conversations that we have with the Acton City Manager that we're hopefully starting to go in that direction. Definitely. And um, the other piece of that, I think, is like community trust building as well. Is like, how do we make folks know that their voices are going to be valued because I've even been in in my many layers of privilege in some of these rooms and felt talked down to when I ask a question, Mm -hmm. you know, related to a budget item or something like that, you know, again, trying to inform myself and feeling that I'm a nuance Mm -hmm. or a a nuisance to Mm -hmm. the people in that space, right? And so how do we build these trust networks? Um, And and that echoes both to um, our city government and also you know something and we're gonna have a tell back on the show in um in our next episode to talk about some other intersecting issues, um, some of the things that we're facing with landlords and collapsing buildings in our community. Um, But so what are the levels in which we can hold our government, our homeowners, landlords, like accountable to the community as well? Yeah. Um, Well, you mentioned the Mill Street um, collapse building. Um, yeah, and I want to jump into Mill Street in our in our next conversation. Okay. Um, and so these are some of the questions that we're asking. Thank you so much for listening to Public Hearing. We've been talking with uh, District 5 City Councilor Atel Hajiai for our series on housing. Th- Atel, thank you for being on the show. We're going to keep chatting. Um, thank you, listeners, for listening to Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Public Hearing is our show about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy for people in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Joshua Croak, founder of Action by Design, where we help organizations, coalitions, and cities imagine and materialize equitable, just, and joyful communities through art and design. Get even more connected to the show at publichearing.co.
Our audio producer is Juliana DeRazio, who also made our show music. Also thanks to Kelly Kajurek and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of Public Hearing. The work continues Worcester, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.